Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations. Today we're discussing the evolution of rock and rap and the influence that young city kids who helped create that music have had on American culture. My guest is Dr. Mark Nason, professor of history and African-American studies at Fordham University, where he also directs the Bronx African-American History Project. He created the class From Rock and Roll to Hip Hop, Urban Youth Cultures in Post-War America. His plan is to encourage partnership with Bronx schools related to the course. Good morning, Dr. Nason. Great to be here again, Robin. So your class, Rock and Roll to Hip Hop, is really popular. It fills up so fast, making it one of the hardest classes to get to at Fordham University or get into at Fordham Mm -hmm. University. What are you doing that's drawing students to this class? So many students. Students love music. Uh, And that's nothing new. When I was growing up in Brooklyn, you know, rock and roll was the soundtrack to our lives. And I think for this generation, they have different music, but... They love music and they see the world through the songs they listen to and the artists who represent those traditions. So it's a natural to have students sign up for anything which uses music as a way of viewing history. And and, and that's what it is. This is a course that uses music to illuminate contemporary American history. So describe what a typical class looks like. Okay, so let's say I am doing the origins of rock and roll. This is a music that began largely in African-American urban communities in the late 40s at a time when many black people were experiencing for the first time a shot at really decent paying jobs. So you have this whole culture that's built up around what was called rhythm and blues. Um, And there were radio stations that catered to this audience and there were record companies which, you know, produced records at this new African-American urban audience, many of whom were working like in auto plants or steel mills or shipyards and making decent money. But here's the thing. When you put a record on the air, you can't segregate the airwaves. So what started to happen was the record stores in the black community started to notice all these young white kids coming in. To buy and, a record. And, and said, and there was a clever DJ in Cleveland who said, what if I renamed this music and sold it to everyone rather than just to the black community? I could make a lot of money. And that guy's name was Alan Freed. And what he called it was rock and roll. So this was an example of urban African-American culture being marketed as non-racial, that that was the big bang that kind of started rock and roll. To do that, I have to explain why all of a sudden black people had enough money in their pockets and enough freedom to create the music that became the basis of rock and roll. So what was going on? This is around World War At the end, at, during and after World War II. So what was going on culturally that helped this music to evolve into something that... Okay, it, a lot of it is economics. During World War II, A. Philip Randolph led this march on Washington to try to uh, end discrimination in defense employment. And it led to the president put, put, having a proclamation 
declaring discrimination in war industries illegal. This meant that when the economy started booming again after the Depression and all these jobs opened up in war industries, black people had a shot at them. So you have people moving from Texas and Louisiana to Oakland and Los Angeles, from Mississippi to Chicago, from uh, Virginia, North Carolina, New York. And not only were black people leaving the South where they were paid very little and had no freedom of expression, now they had money in their pocket and some freedom to express themselves. So, you know, uh, musicians began to create music like filled with the kind of optimism and energy. It was, you know... A reflection of the time. Yeah, yeah. it was... People were optimistic because they, for the first time, they had a lot of money in their pockets and some freedom. So you have this upbeat, danceable, and harmonic music. And it, this was, again, it was compulsively danceable and or beautiful. So it's on the airwaves and... Young white, mostly men, are picking up on it, and they're buying it, and they're dancing to it, and then all of a sudden you've got these entrepreneurs who figure, damn, I can market this, and what if I get white people to do the same music? And you had a little bit of a tradition of that in country music to build on. So there were all these, like, you know, white kids who grew up kind of poor, also had money in their pockets, the, the Elvis Presley, the Jerry Lee Lewis. So you can get them involved sort of fusing rhythm and blues and country music. But then in New York, you've got these children of immigrants, mostly Jewish and Italian, second and third generation, and they're living next to black communities, now they have pretty they have musical traditions of their own from you know the Italian opera the cantor singing in synagogue so especially the duop stuff the urban harmonic music that fits right in their tradition so you have they're listening to this the, the black kids in the high school singing this they start singing it too so you get Dion and the Belmonts you know becoming one of the top like uh duop groups and it, but it starts with the groups in the South Bronx who are black, and then it spreads to the Italian and Jewish neighborhoods. Look, when I was growing up in Brooklyn, we all, all we wanted to do was sing doo-wop and play basketball. I mean, that was the way to get girls, especially if you weren't that good looking, you know, become a ball player or a doo-wop singer. So, so you have this sense of, of musical integration. Oh, well, we didn't think of it that way because you didn't have categories it was marketed as non-racial. So I still remember 11 years old, fifth grade at PS91 in Brooklyn. And all of a sudden, Frankie Lyman and the teenagers, Why Do Fools Fall in Love, crosses our radar screen. All of a sudden, we're having rock and roll parties. Invite, you know, I had nothing to do with girls before that. We're having rock and roll parties. We're dancing. We're playing Spin the Bottle. It's like, and, and it, it, everybody, this became our music. And it, in the beginning, it was almost all black artists in New York because that was where the, du the doo-wop stuff is what we liked. We weren't as much into the Elvis Presley or Jerry Lee Lewis. You know, we were into the Drifters uh, or the Chords or uh, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, Little Anthony and the Imperials. 
So I was singing this stuff by the time I was 11 or 12 years old. And, you know, I was in a singing group at camp called the Five Aprons. We're all waiters. <laughs> this became our music. Right. Now, it was also integrated, but we didn't have categories. You didn't start thinking about civil rights until the 60s, and this is in the 50s. Right. Now, on the other hand, my neighborhood was integrated. I grew up... You know, 85% of the kids were Jewish and Italian, and maybe 10% were black. We didn't talk about it. I always had black, like, playmates, but I didn't think we're doing anything so unusual. But it was. It, it, it was, was, but we didn't think of it. You didn't label it that didn't way. Didn't label it. But remember, we also, I'm seven blocks from Ebbets Field. So I'm growing up with Jackie Robinson. And then we're also learning how to, like, catch a ball like Willie Mays. And I was a basketball player. So there was Elgin Baylor and Bill Russell as well as, you know. So I didn't know it, but I had black heroes as a white kid growing up from music and sports. But I didn't think of this as unusual. It was just how we grew up. It was what it was. And that was New York in the 50s and especially in the Bronx and Brooklyn. To tumble and fall For the mountains Should crumble To the sea This is WFUV's Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm talking about the evolution of rock and rap with Fordham University professor Mark Nason, a scholar of these two important genres of music. He's teaching the class from rock and roll to hip-hop, urban youth culture, and post-war America. Dr. Nason, you say that as rock and roll became more popular, it was also at some point taken over by media media conglomerates and at some point lost its roots. Yeah. So what happened in the 60s and 70s musically that made it lose well, its Well, this roots? is just a fascinating subject, how rock and roll becomes defined as white. Because it started as black, you know, with a little bit of the country music. And then... Um, you know, as it became mass marketed, you know, the white artists became the ones that were most saleable with a few exceptions. Sam Cooke, Ray Charles, the two giants who always were stars, you know. And, and they just then, crossed all racial lines but then the And then Motown. But then the Beatles and the Stones come in. And so... Um, and they are presented as the sort of art of rock and roll. And black artists then become pushed into the category of soul music. So by the middle 60s, you have this artificial distinction between soul music, which is mostly black, with people like the Righteous Brothers fitting in, and then rock and roll, which is mostly white, but you have your Jimi Hendrix. Um, but it, given the beginnings, it's just really bizarre because all, you look at all the early rock and roll shows, whether the Brooklyn Paramount, the Fox, that was totally mixed. And you couldn't tell the difference between what uh, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers and Dion and the Belmont sounded like, you know. So, um, but it's taken over and whitened in a in a, but it takes about 20 years to happen. 
So this sort of uh, categorizing the music ended up um, disenfranchising maybe some of the black artists, would you say? I think it pushed some of the black artists into niches where they might be making less money because they were back into having a mostly black audience. I mean, there's some exceptions to that, obviously, uh, you know, Ray Charles, um, then uh, to a lesser degree, maybe Marvin Gaye, The Temptations. But in general, as by the time you get to the late 60s, look at like Woodstock. How many, who are the black artists at Woodstock? Richie um, Havens. You know, Richie Havens and Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix, or maybe somebody in Santana. And what you and you know you have James Brown is incredibly popular, but even though everybody white knows James Brown, they're not buying his records. Which means he's not becoming financially, um, he's not having as much financial power yeah, as he could have had. As he could have had, had uh, he been marketed as a rock and roll artist as well as a soul artist. But it did turn out to do something great for inner city kids. So what was happening, tell me what was happening socially that led inner city kids to create the new musical expression known as rap. How did okay. rap evolve Now this is there? fascinating. To some degree, rap benefits from the segregation of music because as, the, as black artists are pushed into this niche, and told that somehow it's connected to the essence of blackness and like they begin to explore a rhythmic element and a rhythmic complexity that was not really there in the the 50s rock and roll which 50s rock and roll was mostly harmony driven um, but what James Brown does is he turns every instrument into a rhythm instrument and almost eliminates harmony and melody entirely. Um, and so, you know, it's just pounding, pounding beats. Good God! Yeah. And then you have the same thing being done to with a little more melody by the Isley Brothers. Um, and then you have Sly and the Family Stone, who is sort of in you know, in between, but what you have is that the the soul music, a, a good part of it becomes very heavily rhythmic and percussive, and that is the music that the hip-hop DJs end up sampling. You know, like if you, um, so uh, James Brown is the ultimate sample provider to the hip-hop DJs, Sly and the Family Stones, the Jimmy Castor Bunch, um, and then, you know, you have Latin music, too, which is also there. Uh, but that's also niche music. I mean, you have the emergence of salsa in the late uh, 60s, uh, also uh, Latin boogaloo, uh, Latin soul, but it's very segregated. So rock and roll moves away from the rhythmic complexity into guitar fantasies, you know, that, that Hendrix does. Right. Um, and it's not danceable. I mean, I, I have to tell you, it was a, when I first started teaching 
at Fordham in the early 70s. I had these, I had this big apartment in 99th Street, six rooms. I used to throw parties. The white kids came first, and they just sat around and listened. They didn't dance. Then we put on the dance music, and the black and Latino kids came on. And from like 11 o'clock to 5 in the morning, it was a dance party where there were only a handful of the white kids left. So you think that the reason why young white kids weren't dancing is because it wasn't in their the music? The music they were listening to was not danceable. It, what You listen to Led Zeppelin, you don't dance to Led right. Zeppelin. Right. You know, you're not dancing uh, to most of Janis Joplin. You're listening, you know. You, know, you, might, you can feel it, but it's a totally different feel feeling. It, but it's you go to James Brown. You, you can't stop moving or uh, it's a salsa it, you, you got to shake um now, so, you know and dr nason why was the morsania section of the bronx so important when it came to rap and hip-hop okay uh, a couple of things are going on at this time one is this is the period of very rapid disinvestment in the Bronx. The buildings are starting to burn just when they're closing the firehouses and police stations. Um, the schools, the mu great music programs in the schools are being shut down. So kids are not learning to sing and play musical instruments. You've got kids growing up without the music of tra training that their parents had. And then the world around them is suddenly like filled with fires, broken glass everywhere, people pissing on the stairs. You know, I just don't care. I can't take the smell. I can't take the noise. Got no money to move out. You know what? There's, everything is clashing. And so you can't have harmonic music. See, we grew up in a world, there was no such thing as an abandoned building. And we were experiencing the post-depression, post-Jim Crow surge of optimism. Now, all that's falling apart. You've had riots, the Vietnam War, the Bronx is burning, and your music is taken away. There are gangs running the streets. And so the kids end up creating a music that matches the sonic universe they're in. You know, uh, fire engines, shots, broken glass. And... It, and, and it also has to be without instruments because they don't know where to play anymore. So they make an, music with turntables and a mixer that matches their sonic universe. Now, why the Bronx? Um, it's in part because the Bronx is the only place where you have the three great traditions that contribute to hip-hop. The African-American Southern, the... Latino, mostly Puerto Rican, with some Cuban, and increasingly the West Indian. Because when the immigration laws change in 1965, there's a, a large influx of people, especially from Jamaica, into the Bronx, and they bring a DJ culture to the, to the Bronx that is a little different from what you had before. Because it was a sound system culture based on enormous speakers where, you know, the person who had the biggest speakers made the most money. So let's say, you know, the the, the Big Bang, which creates hip-hop, a lot of people says is what uh, Clive Campbell, a.k.a. DJ Cool Herc, and his sister Cindy Campbell created in the community center of 1520 Sedgwick 
1973. In the Bronx. You know, he came, you know, Clive Campbell, a.k.a. Cool Herc, came to the Bronx in 1967 from Jamaica. So they decide they want to make a little money. You throw a party. You get the biggest speakers you can find, you know, much bigger and loudest, and you, you throw a party. But here's the thing. He put on Jamaican music. Nobody came. Because most of the kids are African-American and Puerto Rican. And they don't know anything yeah, about the Jamaican so, music. But you put on James Brown, you put on Jimmy Castor and Eddie Palmieri, now they're rocking. They can move. And then Herc notices something. When do people dance the most enthusiastically? When you have a record that's pure percussion, a section of a record. Like, uh, you know, James Brown, give it up and turn it loose. It's like 80% just the band. with, And every instrument is a rhythm instrument. So what he just said, what if I... Now, they knew about the, the DJs downtown who would merge one song into another. Keep people dancing. Yeah, and like Pete DJ Jones was the, the, the premier downtown DJ, but at the clubs that the kids in the Bronx couldn't afford and they couldn't pass the dress code. So Herc says, what if I fused a pure percussive section of a record into another one and gave them 10 minutes of pure percussion? People went absolutely nuts. So Herc then decides to take his party outdoors to Cedar Park, which is still there. It's right near NYU along the highway. Um, And he throws an outdoor jam with electricity from the streetlight. No permit. And thousands of people show up. And then everybody around the Bronx who wants to make a little money or get some street fame says, let me start throwing these parties. And it started to spread. Let me ask you a simple question. Um, Dr. Nason, is there a difference between rap and hip-hop? Can you define them? Absolutely. Hip-hop is the entire culture that emerged in the Bronx in the 70s. Did I mention rapping? It, because there wasn't any in the beginning. It was just music. It was just the beats and the dancing, which then became like martial arts influenced what we call b-boying or breakdancing. So you got the music that goes to breakdancing. And the dancing. And then you had the graffiti because mm-hmm. these same neighborhoods had all these people who were tagging the subways. And some of them were very talented. So the hip-hop DJs had their flyers done by the graffiti, the best graffiti artists. Now, how does rapping come in? It did, wasn't there in the beginning, really. There was a little bit of toasting. Like you made something like, yes, yes, y'all, to the beat, y'all. Well, the ladies in the house say, oh. But the rapping only started when you had competition between different DJs in parts of the Bronx. So Herc said, what if I had somebody doing some poetry over my beats? He found somebody named Coke Rock. Wasn't amazingly good, but, you know, there were a lot of people who knew to rhyme around. Um, I don't know if you, you, you've probably heard of the dozens. Yes. You know, That's there was a whole tradition of making fun of your mother, especially yeah. people insulting each other poetically. Right. It's a long tradition in black communities. By the way, we were doing the same thing in the Jewish and Italian neighborhoods. <laughs> so what we, did you call it? Did you know, did you have I a went, different name for it? What did you have a different name for it? No, we just right? called it mother ranking. You know? <laughs> mother ranking. So I still remember at Columbia, 
I mean, I was an athlete, you know, so I had this whole group of athletes. Some of them were from the South and the Midwest. And me and this kid from the Bronx just started insulting each other's mothers in the in the residence hall while these people looked on. What the hell is going on here? We didn't know this was black culture. But the point was there were people who knew to do this stuff. So you could find people who could easily rhyme over beats and boast, you know, right. about themselves you know, their lyrical ability, their sexual prowess, how many girls were going to love them. Mm -hmm. So it started being competitive, you know, three or four years after the, the first parties, the rapping started coming in. But nobody knew there was any money into it until this very clever woman record entrepreneur named Sylvia Robinson, who had been a club owner in the Bronx she uh, at a place called the Blue Morocco uh, in the, the, the 50s and 60s. And she's famous for being part of Mickey and Sylvia Love is Strange. Anyway, so, and then she had her own song called Pillow Talk. So she had her own kind of career, but she knew the Bronx, even though she's Englewood. So she gets together three young guys, none of whom had any fame at all, to put together a rap record called Rapper's Delight. Now, one of them is a guy named Hank. He was a security guard at hip-hop events in the Bronx where a group called the Cold Crush Brothers regularly perform. Grandmaster Kaz, or also called themselves Casanova Fly, was one of the big MCs of the Cold Crush Brothers. One day, Hank asked, you know, Kaz, can I borrow your notebook? Kaz said, sure. Six months later, he has all his lyrics on the radio. Hank just took stuff from Kaz's notebook and put it on Rapper's Delight. And they, they, that went platinum. And that's when people realized there's money in this. You couldn't just have pum pa pum pa pum pa pum pa pum they, there was one record put out like that, but it didn't go anywhere. It's Grandmaster Flash and the Wheels of Steel. Eight minutes of sounding like a schoolyard jam. But that didn't sell. No, but what did sell was the message. See, Rapper's Delight was pure boasting and party music. The message described the social conditions. And that became the two polarities. Party music or social consciousness and description. And this is what you teach in, in your class from rock and roll to hip hop, urban youth and cultures. So you also want to take this information and um, move it towards schools in the Bronx. How do you plan to do that? Well, here's the thing. A lot of people grow up thinking very negatively about the Bronx. Here we have an example of how the Bronx made contributions to world musical culture in two different generations. First, through the early days of rock and roll, when so many of the important, you know, harmonic groups came from the Bronx, uh, the Chords, the Chantels, Dion and the Belmonts, all from the Bronx, all were key in the emergence of, you know, urban harmonic rock and roll in the 50s. Um, then you have 20 years later, a whole other music emerges in totally different conditions, even more in the Bronx than rock and roll was. And I think this is a kind of thing that kids in the Bronx will embrace 
It's in their neighborhood. It's in their schools. It's, it's their in culture, their if you're parks. From the Bronx. And it's so the idea is for um, as many times Bronx students to like sit in in the class, but me to also train my students to go into schools and talk about this and play the songs. So you see it sort of as a mentee mentorship? No, it's more like a, a, an exchange, you know, an even exchange with, but Fordham students being almost trained to be like teachers of, of Bronx music history. And you are going to have students in your class also perform their own original pieces. Absolutely. I've had a number of times students perform in my class. One of them ended up becoming very famous. You know her as uh, Lana Del Rey, but in my class, she was Lizzie Grant and came up and performed her original songs in the guitar. So so you're hoping that your, your uh, class from rock and roll to hip hop will be collab. There will be a collaboration. You want to encourage a collaboration with Bronx schools absolutely. for the and ultimate goal of doing what? Just educating I mean, I or think, encouraging? I think the idea is to promote mutual understanding so that Fordham students appreciate the culture of the Bronx more. Bronx kids appreciate what their neighborhoods produced, and then people get to know one another, and who knows, maybe perform together. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Mark Nason, professor of history and African-American studies at Fordham University, where he also directs the Bronx African-American History Project. And a very special thanks to my producer, Patrick Lusimano. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. I wonder why we take from our women, why we rape our women, do we hate our women?